Ave, and welcome to Win in Rome. And now, cue the music. When in Rome is a podcast about place and space in the Roman Empire. This is episode LXXVI, Utica. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and my guest today is Andrew Dufton. He's an assistant professor of archaeology at Dickinson College. Utica began its life as a Phoenician colony on what is now the coast of Tunisia. And while it later became a colony of Rome, it always maintained a healthy sibling rivalry with nearby Carthage, something it was never really able to overcome. Here's Andrew Dufton. Utica is to the north of Carthage, about an, a day's journey in the ancient world, about an hour's drive in the present day. And it's about 30 kilometers from the modern shoreline, but in the Phoenician and Roman period, it was on the coast, close to a river, the Magerda, which has since silted up to the extent that it's now 30 kilometers inland. Its history in the earliest periods is a little bit hazy. Historical sources suggest it was founded around 1100. There's a number of different sources that point to this date, either in relation to the supposed founding of Carthage or to do with the number of days or number of years away from people writing in much later periods or connecting it to other sort of Phoenician colonies in the central and western Mediterranean at that time. Archaeological evidence is more sort of mid to late ninth century as our current understanding, which still puts it before the foundation of the city of Carthage, a much more famous uh, North African Phoenician colony, but maybe only about 100, 150 years before the foundation of Carthage. Okay. And it'd be hard to know something like this, but why is it, or why do you think it is situated so close to Carthage? I mean, I, I realize that Utica came first, but it feels like it would be in direct competition eventually at some point. And indeed it was. It was in direct competition at varying periods. Utica and Carthage have a sort of maybe like a sort of frenemies um, <laughs> relationship. There's periods where Utica and Carthage are allies and then Utica and Carthage are not. I'm not sure the reasons for the proximity. Utica is first, as far as we know. Stories of the foundation of Carthage talk about a delegation of people from the city of Utica arriving as more Phoenician colonists come to settle Carthage with gifts suggesting that they build the city of Carthage. I mean, it's a coast that has a lot of other cities. The city of modern Bizert, ancient Hippoacra, Hippodiorytus, is also a Phoenician colony. And that's just sort of to the north of Utica, a little bit further up the coast. So they're sort of close, but not that close. But you're absolutely right. It leads to this contentious history where Utica, sometimes when it suits them, is aligned with Carthage, and other times when it suits them, is not aligned with Carthage at all. Mm. So how important was Utica to the trade network then at the time? I imagine that this would have changed the bigger that Carthage got, but was it an integral part or was it go to one or you go to the other, I imagine? I think in the early days, it was kind of the only port in town. The trade networks, especially in the early Phoenician colonization, sort of went moving to the west along the top of the Mediterranean, and they would follow the southern coast of the Mediterranean on their return to the Levant. And so there's a couple of other colonies, Il Caesarea in Algeria, and then coming around to Utica, and then going down to Lepkis Magna in Libya, and then along past Egypt and back up to the sort of the Phoenician heartland. 
in the rise of Carthage. Both of them are still sort of important, but Utica really at the time of the fall of Carthage is not particularly big in comparison. I think this probably has a lot to do with as Carthage grows and grows and grows in power and takes over more of the sort of surrounding territory and certainly is a much stronger military force and a stronger commercial force, I think poor Utica gets a little bit a little bit squashed by this this bigger neighbor. You said it got a bit squashed. Was it ever at times part of Carthage or within its territory? I know that Carthage ranges quite far in the territory they take sometimes. What we see more is Carthage kind of enforcing its power on Utica. And Utica is not the only Phoenician colony in this part of Tunisia. And Carthage is kind of exerting its authority in a way. And so in various conflicts, Utica feels kind of submerged into the Carthaginian cause. It's on Carthage's side in the first Punic War, for example, but then during the mercenary revolt against Carthage after the Punic War, uh, Utica's on the side of the Libyan or the indigenous mercenaries fighting against Carthage. So it feels sort of like the neighbors of Rome, I guess, in the early periods where all of these other Latin cities are kind of waiting for the moment where they might be able to push back. It feels like Utica sort of has a similar dynamic with what's going on. And occasionally it can't. And occasionally it's sort of in its own best interests to ally with Carthage. But other times uh, you can see it's taking its opportunities to push back as much as it can. Yeah. Yeah. And when the Punic Wars come around and you've got a bigger outside enemy to push back against, is there a sense of unity with Carthage or what role does Utica take? The happy bystander, perhaps? It depends on the war. Yeah. So initially you'd think there's this kind of like sense of, I don't know, Punic solidarity. The Punic world doesn't necessarily see itself as this solidarity. Joe Quinn at Oxford has written this great book about Phoenicians not really thinking of themselves as a cohesive ethnicity or peoples at all. And the interactions between Yuda and Carthage are sort of that. So in the first Punic War, Utica is very much aligned with Carthage. Mm. And then from the second, it's more neutral. And in the third Punic War, when the writing's really on the wall for Carthage, uh, Utica is the, the base point for Roman operations. Oh, wow. Fully switched to the other side. The Romans land by Utica. Utica is completely allied with Rome. And Utica gets rewarded for it, right? It's a, it's a sort of canny move. At the end of that, Utica becomes the sort of administrative center of the new Roman province. And so there's very much this sense of an opportunistic relationship with Carthage that's sometimes allied and sometimes absolutely not. Yeah. Okay. So this is the point when it becomes a Roman colony, eventually, it becomes the big news in the area, doesn't it? I mean, we've got this persistent myth that Carthage was salted, which it it wasn't, but there is ostensibly no more Carthage. So at this point, is Utica the big news in the area? Yeah. There's a lot of sort of growth of Utica around this time. The earliest sort of phases are still pretty poorly understood archaeologically at the city. But it seems, based on the most recent research, that around the time of the fall of Carthage, there's this massive plan for expansion of the city of Utica, which sort of corresponds. And Carthage is not salted in the way that it's described being salted in historical sources. But you have to imagine there's still some people who have fled the city who are having to relocate elsewhere. And you see people coming into Utica from elsewhere in the Mediterranean world in a way that kind of reflects this elevated status. And this is when we see the first kind of big boom in the physical growth of the city that aligns with this increased importance. Mm. I'll talk to you more about how the the city itself has changed. But to move the city, how important does it become 
to the Roman Empire. I know that it has a role to play in some sort in the civil wars between Caesar and Pompey. Yes. So it functions as the capital of the Roman province of Africa until about the end of the first century BCE, when Carthage rises again, and we'll get to that. So it is the place of this sort of conflict between Caesar and Pompey, where the forces of Pompey and Curio, the forces of Caesar kind of face off at the city. Ultimately, forces of Caesar are successful. We later see Cato retreating to Utica and and committing suicide. There's this very emotive historical text talking about the gruesomeness of this suicide at the city of Utica after he's aware that effectively the Caesarian forces are going to be successful. So it functions as kind of this proxy in a lot of these historical accounts of the African place where a lot of these larger political dramas of the Roman world are sort of playing out. The rise of Carthage then, again, affects Utica? Yeah. (laughs) And we don't know the date of the refoundation of Carthage. Um, This is something Caesar wanted to do after his victories over the Pompeian forces in Africa. How much he manages to go along with that is debatable. Um, Certainly Augustus sort of continues on in this trend. So at some point, date unknown, but towards either the end of the first century BCE or the early first century CE, it's thought that the governor who'd been positioned at Utica is repositioned back to Carthage. And so Utica loses its position as this kind of provincial capital. And then all of a sudden, a lot of the energy, the money, the resources are flying back into the new Roman colony of Carthage again. And for the rest of its history, which I realize is hundreds and hundreds of years, is it a decline in Utica at that point? Or is this just a quiet provincial Roman city just ticking along? Sort of a kind of bitter sort of sibling to Carthage in some extent. <laughs> we see Utica taking a lot of actions to try to like compete still with Carthage. And so certainly like in the first, second, third centuries CE, there's a lot of monumental building. There's still a lot of wealth at Utica. It's still a relatively large city. The block system extends to close to 90 hectares. So this is still a very big, important place that seems to be kind of struggling to keep up now that its famous neighbor is kind of back. So it's not like a quiet provincial town necessarily, but it's still sort of in the shadow of its neighbor. The monumental building at Utica that kind of often comes around the same time or sometimes just a little bit after Carthage gets a thing. So, oh, Carthage has a new baths. Oh my gosh, Utica has new baths too. Oh, Carthage gets a basilica. Utica gets one also that's not quite as impressive, but still clearly trying to be very impressive. You get this sense, and there's historical accounts also, of of the citizens of Utica sort of petitioning the Emperor Hadrian to try and get promoted in status so they have more freedom, so they can build more things. You really get the sense that they're active citizenry who's very much proud of the city and trying to keep pushing it forward, even as, if we're being honest, it's been completely eclipsed by Carthage at this stage. So can we talk about it then as a Roman city? What sort of features did it have and what sort of scale are we talking we don't know that much about. The first kind of 150 years, I guess, the Republican city, I'm part of a a British Tunisian project that was working on the site. And in the emerging publication for that, it seems like there's this effort almost immediately after the Roman conquest to plan out a very large city. Blocks were surveyed. They were divided into these sort of 12 properties per block. But certainly that entire area that was surveyed was not immediately occupied. And we see this in a lot of Roman foundations or expansions, that the processes, the surveyors show up and set out the plan for what's going to be. And sometimes it takes centuries to fill in some of these spaces. 
So in the first sort of Republican era of Utica, it's not really until towards the end of the first century BCE that we start to see the emergence of a Republican forum. A ton of the center of the Punic town is effectively lopped off. They raise the ground by about a meter in some places to make space for a Republican forum. But this is all happening relatively late. So for the first century, it seems like there's plans to expand it, but it all seems a little haphazard in terms of the rate of expansion and the types of construction that are possible. Mm. From around the turn of the first century BCE to the first century CE, we start to see the increasing monumentalization of the city, and it starts to get some of the monuments that we still sort of know more about today. So some of the early constructions, the Punic fortification, the extent of the Punic town are rebuilt in better sort of more stable masonry. We start to see the emergence of monuments alongside the Republican Forum. At some point around the beginning of the second century, we see the addition of a new forum, perhaps dedicated to the Emperor Trajan, a new basilica emerges. So in the early stages, it seems like it's kind of a rush to make the city worthy of its status of a Roman capital. Mm. And then it's not until about the first or second century CE that we start to see it get some of the more standard monuments that are still there that have been excavated. The houses become more impressive. This all sort of happens a little bit later. These monuments are happening later, but you are getting things like there's an amphitheater, for example, isn't there? And you get Roman yeah. baths and all those kind of things. There's a bath, there's an amphitheater, there's a theater, there's a basilica. The Republican Forum has a temple on one side and a very large house on the other side. When the forum is restructured, the basilica around the middle of the second century gets placed right into the middle of the Republican Forum. So the open space is much smaller. This new form of Trajan gets placed. They do this very clever architectural thing where the ditch of the original Punic fortification which is about 30 meters wide, so a very big ditch. They turn into a monumental avenue around this time with a portico on one side and shops. And so it's sort of like this very impressive feature separating the monumental core of the town from the elite housing immediately to the south. So it has a lot of the urban furniture you would expect a Roman city to have at the height of empire. And in the second century, Utica is certainly keeping up with much of the other North African cities in terms of its monuments. So during the Hadrianic period, a lot of cities around the Mediterranean got Hadrian associated goodies either to do with his visit to the area or to try and get him to visit the area. Was this what Utica's Hadrianic features were associated with? Would Hadrian visit there at all? Hadrian does a tour through North Africa and so would have stopped at Utica. There's also this passage in the Attic Nights by Alice Gellius where the citizens of Utica come to Hadrian and ask to be promoted to the civic status of Colonia. And Hadrian doesn't really understand why they would want that because it seems like they already have all the benefits in their existing status. So I sort of trot this out in my own writing as a reason to ignore some of these civic statuses because it's like even Hadrian doesn't really understand what the difference between them fully is. But it clearly matters to the people of Utica. Now, people have suggested that this is to do with when Hadrian's traveling through North Africa. And so possible it's a period when he's visiting the city and they're making these entreaties to him, or possibly they're going to see him elsewhere. But he certainly is traveling in North Africa. And along with his travels, we see cities like Utica getting monumental projects either right before or right after or clustered on either side of his visit. Lisa Fentress, who's one of the co-directors of the project that I've worked on at Utica, this Tunisian-British project, suggests that it's the visit of Hadrian in his sort of keen architectural eye that sort of sees this existing ditch 
the fortification had been taken down at this point. It's Hadrian's keen architectural sense that thinks, you know what, we could turn this into this forum to my predecessor Trajan, to this temple in the center of it, to the deified Trajan, and to create this miraculous kind of colonnaded grand avenue that will make the town seem a little bit more impressive. We don't know whether or not Hadrian is actually the one who did this, but it's certainly happening around the time that he's traveling in North Africa. Does it retain any of its Phoenician roots or influences as the city develops into a Roman one? Again, cities around the Mediterranean, especially around that area, seem to have a bit of unromanness. That is so an inelegant way to put it, but I'm, I think you know what I'm getting at. A certain provincialness. I'll, <laughs> I'll lose my post-colonial chops with that one. Yeah, I mean, it has elements. Certainly, initial expansion has a lot of shared characteristics with the late Punic architecture at Carthage. The block sizes or the ratio of length to width of the blocks is very similar to the latest that we know of neighborhood excavated at Carthage. The houses, a lot of them have the sort of the original house divisions in the new blocks at Utica have this long entrance corridor that often has like a well or something at the end of it in a very small courtyard. This is a, a domestic form, which is very, very Punic. We see it at Carthage. We see it at Kerkouan, the sort of type site of Punic cities in many ways, because it gets abandoned before Rome comes. So some of the buildings at Utica still maintain this kind of sense of an earlier North African kind of vibe to what their architecture looks like. What we see over time is that more citizens are kind of adopting this Mediterranean-wide trappings of what an elite person sort of looks like by introducing mosaics, by introducing sort of the courtyard house. There aren't really any atrium houses in North Africa. That's not a very common form. But the courtyard house certainly makes an appearance in greater numbers after the Roman conquest. So there's still things that seem a little bit specifically North African about it, even in later periods, um, as they're taking on aspects that would be recognizable to Roman elites from elsewhere. So can you tell me then about the excavation history of it? How well studied has this site been? And I guess initially, is this the sort of site that has been, I assume, buried to some extent, but also rubbed out by that's a useful bit of stone that I can use kind of practices? Yes. I mean, it's been actually very badly robbed out. And so it's... (laughs) Compared to some of the other cities in North Africa, which are still quite spectacular, some of the best preserved cities in the Roman world, Utica is not that by comparison. There's extensive robbing in the 19th and 20th centuries, or the 18th and 19th centuries, I guess, of many of its monuments. And also it was reoccupied into later sort of early Islamic 12th, 13th, 14th century, which also impacted the survival of some of its things. In terms of the history of excavation, in the 19th century, it's sort of the same as you get in a lot of North African cities, these kind of early French expeditions that produce these very definitive accounts or maps of what the city must have looked like and which are mostly proven to be sort of entirely bonkers, use topography but misinterpret it into making the ditch of the Punic rampart suddenly becomes an artificial harbor and there's all these monuments that in fact don't actually exist. Mm. So the earliest encounter with the site is by these French, often military forces that are surveying things as part of the process of French colonization of Tunisia and Algeria more broadly. In the early 20th century, we see some excavations particularly interested in the Punic necropolis that exists 
now on either side of this grand avenue. Initially it continued, but then it was cut into at a later date by the ditch for the fortification. So a lot of early focus by someone called the Abbe Moulin was looking at the Punic burials, basically. And some of them are very elite. So we have all these nice little intaglios and other very fancy kind of grave goods. Then in the 1950s and 60s, there was a sort of an ongoing French mission that started to document and to excavate more completely some of the surviving materials. And so that's where we know most of the information we have on residential blocks outside of the monumental core. These are things that were initially exposed in the 50s and 60s. After that, I'm trying to think, uh, there was some work done by the Corpus des Mosaïques de Tunisie and the team of Margaret Alexander that was recording the mosaics at the site and excavated as part of that a large house, the House of the Grand Oikos, alongside the Forum. And then more recently, there's been a number of different teams, one that I'm involved in, a British-Tunisian project, and another a Tunisian-Spanish project that's looking at the earliest levels of Phoenician stuff at the very tip of what would have been the promontory of the initial Phoenician colony. Can you tell me about the most recent one that you've been involved in? The Tunisian-British project is mostly in the publication stages now, but it was focusing on a couple of different areas. There was a large excavation area focused on the center of the forum where we excavated the basilica that was built in the mid-2nd century. doesn't really survive in any meaningful form, but there were a lot of broken columns that had since been kind of robbed out and pieces of these giant granite columns remained in what was otherwise just a flat sort of cleared paved area. And it turns out that the two rows of the columns of the basilica had been robbed out. So you could sort of dig through the robbing trenches. And we found lots of great things there, architectural fragments, sculptural fragments, sort of looking at that. And then that trench extended to the other side of the road from that basilica into what would have been this forum that was produced in honor of the Emperor Trajan, the deified Trajan. There was also a second excavation area to the south of the city, looking at a productive area that was just on the outskirts. So an area that in the sort of third, second centuries BCE was occupied, but less, more sort of retaining walls, not any any real production. And then from the Roman period is made into a series of pottery kilns and eventually a lime kiln, and then eventually a house alongside pottery kilns. So there was also some excavation work there, looking at the kind of productive suburbs of this town at its time. And there was a third area looking at this house of the Grand Oikos. So there were a couple of rooms that were not excavated fully during the recording of it in the 70s and 80s. And so we excavated those to try and get a sense of the plan of the house as a whole and how the things that had been previously cleared related to that and also the later periods of occupation of this house. Yeah. Um, so there were sort of three key areas. There's other trenches that were opened up, but those were the main consistent areas over time. Yeah, yeah. And do you think that Utica is understood well enough for the site that it is? Or do you think that there is more work to be done? If you had funding and time, what would you be looking at? Would you be looking for the lost tomb of Cato or anything like that? (laughs) Uh, Which is allegedly by the coast. And now we don't know where the coast (laughs) is. So it's kind of a, it's probably going to continue to be lost. Wait, Um, wait, wait. I think I might have a quote somewhere. Utica, Utica, Utica. They decked his body in splendid fashion, gave it an illustrious escort and buried it near the sea where a statue of him now stands, a sword in hand. That's in Plutarch. There you go. (laughs) something to look forward oh poor Cato Um, (laughs) there's only been sort of two and a half actual insulae that have been excavated at Utica and we know from geophysical results completed by the British school at Rome as part of this British Tunisian project that there are 120 blocks or something where you can see quite clearly in the geophysical results that the dividing walls are still there you can make out clearly where the road is clearly where the blocks are and so certainly 
excavating a couple of city blocks, I think would be a tremendously, tremendously valuable way to understand not just the monuments of the city, but how did the rest of the city change? When were these blocks constructed? Certainly the blocks closest to the forum undergo through a period of gentrification or they become more elite over time as the fortunes of the city rise. It's a very open question whether a rising tide is lifting all boats in this case, or whether there's other parts of the town, other neighborhoods that are not seeing their fortunes increase under Roman power. So I think for me, digging something like that would be super valuable, but there's tons that we don't know about the center of the town. We don't know the location of its port. We don't know much about its hinterland. There's lots to be done. Does things from Utica then crop up in France? I know, for example, there's a Leptus Magna temple that's over in England, I think. God, these things are always... <laughs> there's a lot of mosaics from Utica, and to be honest, I don't know where most of them are. I think a lot of them are in the Bardo Museum in Tunis, because the bulk of the excavations that started to reveal a lot of finds were happening not until a little bit later, around the time of Tunisian independence. It wasn't robbed as early as some other sites, and so it didn't lose as much of its stuff. There's also a cute little museum on site. It has additional mosaics. It has some mosaics from something called the House of the Hunt. It has statues. It has inscriptions. But I think a lot of the stuff is still in the Bardo in Tunis. I'm not sure if it's gone as far as the British Museum or the Louvre or anything like that. Yeah. Oh, but that's good, though. The best way to see Utica is to actually go to Utica. Given it was, in many periods, the second most important city in North Africa, certainly, I guess, until maybe the Severans when Leptus Magna starts to rise in importance. But given how important it was... It's kind of off the beaten track. It's not really on the tourist radar. It hasn't seen that much publication. It's seen even less publication in English. I have a fondness for it. You go and visit it, you think it looks a bit of a mess, but I, I still have quite a fondness for it anyway. <laughs> well, if it helps, the podcast episode that I'm doing on Utica, I have never done one on Carthage. Oh, sweet. I mean, I'm sure the ancient citizens of Utica would be like, <laughs> yes, finally, we've like we beat Carthage to the punch on something after all of it, it took them 2,000 years, but they're here. Like, they've arrived. <laughs> That was Andrew Dufton, Assistant Professor in Archaeology at Dickinson College. And you have been listening to When in Rome. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in any readily available podcatching platform. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can like When in Rome on the Emperors of Rome Facebook page, and you can follow us on Twitter. Andrew is at J.A. Dufton. I am at Nightlight Guy, and the podcast is at Rome Podcast. When in Rome is a crowdfunded podcast, so I'd like to give a sincere thanks to those who have supported. Our imperator for this episode is Virginia Shaw, and our triumvirs for Season 7 are Lorenzo Marasco, Ken Acousti, and Dean Pavitt. Are they to you? A special shout-out to Ollie Julian, the composer of the music that you're listening to in this podcast. It's the theme music to the ITV show Plebs from Rise Comedy. That's it today for When in Rome, so until the next episode, I'm Matt Smith... You've been fantastic, and thanks for listening.